Attention listeners, do you ever find yourself struggling to decide what to watch on a Saturday night when you're in the mood for horror? Or perhaps you're trying to round out your own horror film education. In either case, I'm sure you'll be able to make some great discoveries in my 10x10 horror watch list, featuring a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors. We did a deep dive of the favorite horror movies from directors including Guillermo del Toro, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, James Gunn, Rob Zombie, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more. Here you'll find a collection of each director's favorite horror movies, along with quotes about what they appreciated about the films, all in an easy-to-reference PDF that you can download absolutely free. Featuring a mix of well-worn classics and deep cuts, hopefully you'll discover some overlooked gems and look at old classics through new lenses. Download the 10x10 Horror Watch List for free by visiting nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. We're also brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee. It's the number one choice of horror fans worldwide. Nothing starts your day or night better than a delicious cup of Deadly Grounds. Whether you're hunting ghosts or fighting the next zombie apocalypse, any one of Deadly's 30-plus roasts will bring you to caffeine nirvana with the richest flavor you've ever had. Whether you're craving their Hellhound Roast, Witch's Brew, Devil's Night Roast, or Sinful Delight, order online at getdeadly.com for easy and safe shipping right to your door. We know that once you go deadly, you won't go back. Join the deadly revolution today. Be bold, be different, be deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. Get some at getdeadly.com. Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Brian Usna is a man who needs no introduction. A writer, director, producer, Brian Usna produced multiple movies directed by Stuart Gordon, including Reanimator, Dagon, From Beyond, and Dolls. Brian directed one of my personal favorite deep cuts, which is Society. If you have not seen Society, do yourself a favor and watch it, ideally with Joe Bob on Shudder. Brian also directed Bride of Reanimator, Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, Beyond Reanimator, Return of the Living Dead 3, and many, many more. He is an icon of horror, and it was an absolute honor to speak with him. I previously spoke to Brian in an earlier episode about remembering Stuart Gordon, which I highly recommend checking out. Brian mostly focuses that conversation discussing his collaboration with and what he learned from Stuart Gordon. This conversation is a little more wide-ranging. Brian talks about the current state of horror, a number of directorial lessons he's learned along the way, both in his own career and from observing the career of others. And overall, it just paints a really good picture of what it takes to be a horror filmmaker. In any case, hope you enjoy. Please give it up for the legendary Brian Usna. You know, they say that the best thing, the best gift you can give a newborn is an intelligence, wit, good looks, riches. The best thing you can give them is good luck. Mm, okay. <laughs> so that's what today's horror filmmakers need is good luck. I think so. Well, I think you always have needed good luck yeah. to kind of make 
just to make any money in the movie business. Um, but I think, you know, for horror movie makers, of course, generally they're independent. Yeah. It's kind of like having a garage band, like aspiring to be a band, you, you know, right. like a rock and roll band. Or back in the day, this was like, you know, um, it's not like I'm going to go work for A&M Records and, you know. Yeah. So I, I imagine all of your listeners, aspiring horror movie makers, are they're not thinking about trying to get a job with kind of get their project at Warner Brothers, although maybe they are or Netflix. Right. They yeah, are, that's the big one now. Yeah. That's what they want. Yeah. That's what they think so they've they got to, so then they so then they've got to make a calling card. Yes. Right. Because probably most of them didn't go to USC film school. They didn't go to these places that are, you know, you have to, they call the entrance, you know, you've got to get in. Right. And then you get the great advantage of kind of making contact with getting to be friends or at least acquaintances with a whole bunch of people who, who are doing the same thing you are. Yeah. I heard that's the you the big know, advantage of film school is the, the networking. That's it. Yeah. And it also, I must say, um, knowing a few people who have gone to, um, to the, um, you know, to big film schools. Um, I never did. I never had a film class in my life. Yeah. But, but, um, I do think that there's a value to it, especially the ones um, that are um, that they basically make movies. Mm -hmm. If you go to a college that's going to give you a degree, yeah. like you know, like USC or UCLA, or you also have to go to regular classes, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you're stuck having to go to college, which I think is a good thing. Okay. Good idea to learn stuff. Yeah. Very good idea. But um, I think all of them now, all the, I think all the film schools now, um, they basically try to replicate the experience of making a movie. So they tend to, you know, each person chooses what they want to do, you know, like somebody yeah. wants to be a DP and, um, Somebody wants to write and somebody wants to produce and somebody wants, most everybody wants to direct. Right. And, um, and I think that then you have to mount your project and you have to kind of raise money for it, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And um, AFI. Yeah. That's the big, that's the big, I, it's the big one that isn't like just a regular university. My nephew went there and actually Richard Gladstein, who, Produced the Silent Night, Deadly Night movies. Oh, wow. I did. <laughs> and also produced um, Reservoir Dogs, Green Lake. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And ended, up and ended up producing a lot of Quentin Tarantino's movies. Yeah. Um, he was actually the dean of the AFI Whoa. for a while there. It's good that you have people with industry experience yeah. actually teaching the classes. I feel like that's critical. Um, the thing is, it's only about that, and they curate the students i think they only take 120 students and stuff i think and ari aster went there he the guy who did uh midsomar and uh hereditary oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah i think he I did mean, afi hey so did so did um blue velvet um, oh lynch david lynch 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 made made um his first movie there oh eraserhead 
Yeah. Oh, wow. Eraserhead wow. was made as a AFI project. I so, didn't know that. You know, it's funny because I saw Eraserhead when it was when it was a midnight show at the Waverly in New York City. Whoa. And um, and I always thought it was a New York made movie. Yeah. It didn't look California at all. It feels about as New you York I mean? as it, it gets. It just didn't look California at all. Yeah. And yet David Lynch made it under the AFI and then um, made a bunch of very California-like movies. Yeah. But anyway, I think that if you – anybody who's looking for advice from someone you have as a guest on your mm-hmm. show – about how to kind of get into the horror, into making horror movies, isn't well, probably isn't going to the AFI and USC and UCLA and um, maybe not and going down in, in Orange County. <laughs> but the advantage of that is, of course, you get to meet people who are going to be probably on the way up because it's already been curated. Easier to get an agent, yeah, because you know, that's the big thing. You've got to get a representation and. It's hard to get representation. It's hard to get anybody decent. And and then and then of course, you know, you can't get how do you get a job? Yeah. And, uh, I think most people I think when we're younger, we also I, I not just in the movie business, but we have this idea that if we just work hard and do the right thing, mm-hmm. our talent is gonna get us into the club in this this club that this structure that's there for you. Right. And uh, the, one of the terrible things about life is I don't think that happens on any level. Well, what is it that does distinguish those who make it versus those who don't? Cause I think you're right. A lot of people think, I think, well, I mean, it's just say good luck, but of course you have to good luck means being ready for an opportunity. Right. Maybe, you know, um, using whatever advantages that you have, you know, I have a, you know, it's funny. I, um, two of my sons went to high school and one junior high school as well in Barcelona when I was in Spain doing the Fantastic Factory. Mm-hmm. So they went to the international school there. And I decided at one point that I was going to make a film club at their school and make a movie. Okay. Show them how to make a movie. And um, and that way I would kind of be doing something with my kids every week. Yeah. Right. And I I um, had them all write like a three page script, and then almost nobody like fifteen people, twenty people came. Right? Okay. High school, and this is Spain, so the it's an international school, so there are different nationalities, mm-hmm. and then. There was only one guy who actually was so dedicated. He wrote two scripts. Oh, wow. He was really driven. He was really into movies. And so he was Catalan. Um, And he, um, we ended up making his short film. And then we, and then his parents let him go to school in, in SoCal um, because he was, um, because we were here, mm-hmm. I, I, I actually entered entered into a business a, a business deal with his dad. Oh, okay. And, and so he went to school here, and he made a couple of 
short films because that's kind of what you do in, in film school. And, um, and that Chapman University, you know, Chapman? I've heard of it, they yeah. Have, like, the biggest, they have the biggest um, production facilities, I think, of any school in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, very conservative place down in Orange. It's in the city of Orange, I think. Okay. And, um, and so he had a short that um, kind of won an award in, in, um, in, I think, in some like the, the, the HBO comedy awards films or something in Colorado or something. So he like got an award, right. Mm-hmm. And made another short film. And, and, um, I tried to, I sent his, um, his, his short to the, actually the head of, of, um, of feature films at UTA. Okay. Wow. <laughs> well, I happen. I just, I just ha- I just worked with him before he was ever that. Yeah. And it's not like I'm not represented by UTA. I've never had an agent, right? Oh wow. But We're gonna have to talk about that. He, but but he but I thought, look at this, it's good. Maybe you can represent him. And you know he turned him down. Hmm. Because these agents, you know, they're looking, there's got to be, there's tons of people trying to yeah. get in. And then you got to have, man, you have to have a, a management. And But this guy kept working at it. And eventually, I forget who he's represented. I think his agency now might even be UTA. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. one of the big ones. Yeah. And, but his management, usually, I guess you get, it's not important to get big time management necessarily. Mm-hmm. You kind of want to have management that maybe are more personal to you. Yeah. You want a manager who cares. If you're big enough, you know, you then the management's going to care about you, the big ones. Right. So so there's that whole kind of getting in the doorway and getting represented. And he still couldn't get a movie. Oh gosh. He was offered stuff. He developed stuff for like Blum horror, I'm talking horror here. Yeah. Like Blumhouse and these things, kind of, they're kind of very. It's very complicated. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and finally, the one thing that he did have going for him is that he's he's Spanish, he's Catalan, mm-hmm. and he was able to um, through a through a my old um, casting director in Spain. Um, was making was doing adaptations of theater plays, Spanish, yeah, um, low budget and stuff. So he got to do one of those, and then he so now then he had a feature. Then his um, family supported him to make a horror movie here, mm-hmm. and um, of a pretty good budget. And then he still wasn't. He was getting kind of some scripts and stuff, and he finally went back to Spain. Uh huh. And now he's working constantly on TV in Spain, on series, a Netflix series. You know, Netflix. Oh, good for him. So he made it. But he's working. He's a working director. Yeah. But the point I'm making, how many of the people listening to this have that option of having a family that can back you? Right. Right. I never did. 
right? I don't know. Right. Some people do. But just because you have a rich uncle doesn't mean that you can that you can make it work. Yeah. You can make a movie and still still have a hard time. Yeah, of course. And I think that this is a um, you know, there's lots of people making movies. Lots of them. I mean, if you can do this guy, I think had the had lots of advantages, and it's still tough. Mm-hmm. It's still tough. And then you have people like my friend Jackson Stewart, who made Beyond the Gate, mm-hmm. um, a very low budget movie that he raised the money for, and it got its money back. But he's still trying to get his second movie. Right. You know, I don't know. There's a lot of horror movie directors that do independent movies and they kind of have a a kind of a festival kind of spark to them. Right. They get kind of fans and, um, and then you notice that they're, you think, Oh, they must be, they're going to get the big deals and they don't, they don't get, you know, it's, it's it's a, it's a whole business. um, It's kind of being connected. I don't, I don't think it's always, sometimes it's just about some people are really, really talented right. or they're talented in the right way. Yeah. So you take somebody like James Wan, um, who, you know, kind of was just kind of clicked that, you know, he didn't hit it big out of the gate, but mm-hmm. he somehow was able to hang in there with the saw yep. and, and then the next thing you know, he's doing Fast and the Furious, which <laughs> I have I have no idea how that works. An Aquaman. I've never been there. No, it's just that idea that some people can work within the big the big structures. Yeah. And some people can't. Why why was Stuart Gordon not like an A-list director? I I'm not I'm not sure I've met many directors that I think that were better than more talented than yeah him. he no, was super talented but he certainly wasn't he certainly didn't fit into the big productions you know i yeah i i you know christoph gans who i produced his first two movies christoph gans um is a french director mm-hmm. and he he did one of the episodes of necronomicon which oh, okay and he did the first one, the one that's like this super hyper Roger Corman kind yeah. of movie. And um, and he's really talented. He was a, a critic in in France. Mm-hmm. So he had some, he had a TV show. and But he's a young guy. Uh, back then, we were all younger. Right. Um, and, and he did Necronomicon and then... We did Crying Freeman, which in this country nobody's seen because of some legal battles. Mm. But in Europe, it's quite was very successful. It's a beautiful, really great movie. It's based on a manga, a Japanese manga oh, called wow. Crying Freeman, about a yaku a a um, yakuza um, uh, assassin who who's been brainwashed to kill. Oh wow! And he kind of cries every time he kills <laughs> little like each so the crying freeman right crying freeman. and um but it's really a beautiful movie if anybody can chase it down it's that hard because cool. it's never been released on anything in the u.s yeah but it's really 
Um, really a great, beautiful movie and lots of cool action and stuff. Yeah. And, um, and Christoph, when we were doing Crying Freeman, which was a much bigger budget than what we had done before, um, and we shot it up in Vancouver, and all of a sudden we're hiring kind of big-time ADs and DPs and all this. And it was funny that the crew, once you start paying the crew, you get pe- crews that where you're paying a lot more money to, they all have their own sense of self. Right. And it's difficult for, um, for Christoph started having a prop. We had all the equipment we needed. It was like, you know, compared to the stuff I normally do, it was yeah. like, wow, an embarrassment of riches, you know? <laughs> and, and he, um, and he was just having a hard time because the crew kind of didn't respect him. Whoa. You know, really. And and he started actually kind of spending all his time with the second unit, hmm. the small crew. Wow. And in fact, in fact, it got so bad that at one point we we reached the end of our production or at least our pro- projected production schedule. And we and we actually had a rap party. And dismissed the crew. <laughs> and then the next day we went back to work with the, with the second unit. Oh, wow. And shot another 10 days of some of the biggest stuff in the movie. Wow. Because the small crew responded to him. the big guys. They saw him as like this crazy French guy inexperienced wow. and, you know, yeah. and, and when he, I remember at one point he was, he was talking to me about it. He says, what the, what, what's going on here? Why, why is this so brutal? And I said, you know, it just appears to me that when you're doing an independent little movie, you know, when you do your little horror movie and you don't have any money and you're piecing it together, you're kind of like the, you know, a second Lieutenant with a platoon. Yeah. You know, if anybody knows, you know, army kind of yeah. structure, which I don't, but I know that much. Mm-hmm. I've seen Platoon, which is a pretty <laughs> good movie. But a second lieutenant, those were the guys that they'd have a sergeant and they'd have maybe 20 guys in a platoon. The, the officer, the second lieutenant, you know every single person on that in that platoon. Yeah. And they have a you have a relationship with them. You lead them, and I think when you're making a small movie, um, that's the way it is. You've got a small crew; nobody's getting paid crap, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of personal personal relationships yeah. and pulling together. When you move up to a bigger movie, now you're not a second lieutenant anymore. Now you're like a colonel. Or something. Mm-hmm. And now you've got to have second lieutenants below you. Right. Now you have to have a different, you have to kind of direct things at a kind of a, you know, in a more, in a more complex way, giving authority to other people, yeah. getting stuff done through a big structure. There, If there's a lot of money involved, then there's the, the people who are putting up the money, a lot of times 
they get some insecurities and, or maybe they have suggestions and you right. got to figure out how to deal with that, how to massage that, how to give them what they need or want. Right. So be careful and, what you wish for. And at the same time that you get what you maybe don't, not as what you want, but maybe what at least you need. Right. Um, and that's a very different, um, it's a very different directing um, technique or talent. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's my, that's how I understand why someone like Stuart Gordon didn't become a huge director. He probably preferred because indie he, sets. He would have loved, believe me, everybody, you talk, you ask the, the low budget guys and say, why did you always make the small budget movies? Did you just want all bullshit? Everybody wants to make the huge movie. Yeah, of course. You know, can you, I can't, you know, but Stuart couldn't, he had his one big shot with space truckers. Right. You know, um, who's that? Who's the actor? Uh, I don't know, the big actor in that, that you just didn't respect him, mm. you know, because Stuart can take any act, any actors and make them into something. Right. But if you look at Spielberg, he didn't deal with stars for a long time. I mean, he had been directing for 15, 18 years before he actually started dealing with stars. Right. Because you, it's a different relationship. You know, they're, they're more important than you a lot. Right. And I think very few um, indie horror guys ever are able to have that ability. Sam Raimi would be one. Mm -hmm. James Wan. Yeah. But you notice Peter he Jackson. still ends up. He still ends up. Yeah. Peter Jackson. He still ends up in, um, in Blumhouse. Right. James Wan. I mean, I think those, a lot of these big, huge movies the directors, you know, they're doing one part of the job. You know, it always reminds me of at one point, I think it was in the 90s or maybe after the 90s when Joel Silver used to make all these horror movies. He had this, who did he, who was he partners with in that Dark Castle thing? And, um, and they did like, you know, House on Haunted Hill and, you know, I don't know what, what the other 13 Ghosts. Were. 13 ghosts and all this. And, but the directors they got, sometimes you wonder who's that. Right. And you realize that, well, when you make this, they weren't big budget movies, but compared to what indie guys do, they were big budget. Right. Mm -hmm. But you work for Joel Silver and you do what Joel Silver wants. You know, right. not, it's not like you're going out there. And I think indie guys, you've got your, you put together a hundred grand to make a movie and you think, well, I mean, this is going to be my calling card. Yeah. You know, you, and maybe it's a success, maybe it works. And, but then you're going to go to a bigger movie and you've got some producer who you're like, um, you know, you don't have the power to really, to, to within that situation, right. I think it becomes a different issue. Sam Raimi pulled it off. Yeah, because Evil Dead is the epitome of a indie movie. Mm -hmm. wasn't even shot in L.A. It was shot, I think, in Michigan. Right? Yeah, 
And then he did get a chance to do, um, I don't know, did he do the ABC, ABC murders after that? I don't think so. You know, I get the feeling he did. And then he did that superhero one. What was it called? The um, Not Spider-Man? No, I'm talking about the 80s. Oh, man. okay. Oh, Darkman. What was it? Darkman. Darkman, right, which was pre-digital, yeah. but very prescient superhero stuff. Very well done. And and I think a lot of it had to do with this um, Bob Tappert, this right. producer. Somebody has to has to kind of negotiate how to you know mount these kind of productions. Yeah. And then he they they did um, the TV show um, that Sword and Sorcery one, the female. Oh, Xena, Warrior Princess. Xena, right. So that gave that kept the money going in and stuff. Yeah. But uh, but then he was he got up. He did a perfect crime. I think it was called a perfect crime, mm-hmm. where he's trying to be like a list to show he can do mainstream. Yeah. You know, and then but it wasn't the it wasn't the grand slam. But it did, but he did, was able to do Spider-Man. Yep. It all led there. That's the big time. It's not being an A-list director because it wasn't, you know, an A-list director gets all the big ones. Yeah. You know, but Sam Raimi did it. Um, I think that um, Joe Dante mm-hmm. had his time where he, from the from the howling, you know, moving up into, you know, he had those toy soldier one, he right. had the, you know, he had some bigger, you know, well, of course, gremlins, was yeah. such a hit, not a big movie, but a hit, but it was still with the studios. Mm-hmm. And then you take somebody like John Carpenter, Halloween was, it was an indie movie, but not the kind of indie movie that your listeners are thinking of. Yeah. Because it was financed by financiers. It was financed by a company I forget the name of the of the producer financer that I know Mustafa Akkad produced it, huh? Mustafa Akkad could be very well, but those guys were financing movies, yeah. and actually, if I'm not mistaken, my understanding was that it was originally called the Babysitter, right? The, I think so. Halloween, and I think that I think it cost like three hundred grand. Yeah, it was right? really cheap. Which back in nine. 19- which back in 1998, it's pushing $3 million. It's yeah. $2 million, right? If yeah. you're looking at the value. Although back then, back in the days, which almost all the movies I made are, were done on 35 and with Niagara recorders and, you know, money didn't go as far. Yeah. You know, I mean, actors and talent and all that, it almost, it costs more. Yeah. But, but, Today you don't need all you need is a is a um, hard drive wrangler, you know, <laughs> a data wrangler. You don't have this. You don't have the the Ross talk. You don't. You know. Yeah. Everything is much cheaper, and the you can get away with so much less lights, which means so much less crew. You can mm-hmm. shoot anywhere, which is why everything's done on location. Yeah. You know. But anyway, John Carpenter with Halloween. That was a mammoth success, mammoth. And then 
he and Deborah Hill did um, did this um, pirate ghost one. What was it called? The, the Fog. The, the Fog, right. And it kind of didn't quite work. Mm. And it went, it was like the cutting, you know, they had to like try to piece it together to make it work because it was kind of a, it was kind of like James Wan's second movie about the puppet. What was it called? You know, what's James Wan's second movie? No, no, that's way later. It's before it's, it was after, it was after Saw. After Saw, the second, his next movie, he got more money. And he did this ventriloquist doll movie with a bunch of miniatures. What was it called? I don't remember that. I mean, it didn't work, but it's kind of sort of my favorite James Wan movie (laughs) because because I just love that. I just love the tone of it. I love where he was going with it and the... And all the I love the, the miniatures and stuff. You know, like I love the, the original crow because everything was miniature. Yeah. There's something about miniatures that that are just, I don't know, they're inspiring. It looks cool. And I wish they'd bring it back. It's like practical effects, you know. It's it feels it's, very um, real. I think it's a it's sort of a classic. It's the the soul of the of the metal guys. It, right. It was it's like you get the feeling this is what metal guys you know rock and roll metal guys that's their in their imagination they're right. pro right um, <laughs> but, I think that, but i think that you know with james wani had that one it was a complete miss but it, there's something very interesting about it yeah and the, fo- the fog is similar it was like and i, I and i'm basically uh, going off of a lot of listening to watching the extras on the um Shout Factory Blu-ray. Those are great. I love the those. They, they, they have some great um, interviews, and you really realize that, wow, just like they, then he did, what did he do? Did he do The Thing after that or The Escape from New York? I think Escape I from New York came before The Thing. Yeah, So and then, which kind of hit it, it got back in a certain lane. Yeah. The Thing, which I think... Um, most horror fans thing is is just fantastic because it's one it's all in the snow right which is kind of cool and it's kind of real lovecraftian oh yeah and it's and it's um and it has like these you know kind of still special effects that i don't think have quite been matched Mm -hmm. and yet when you listen to the commentary you realize it was just all a big mess. Oh yeah, and the effects never worked. Of course, they never do work. Which would be one advice I'd give to young horror directors or producers more than directors. Both special effects never work. Okay, <laughs> if they if they always work the first time, they wouldn't be called special. A real special effect is about inventing something right however it's tailored just to a little situation they never work and Mm. that's not a bad thing that just means you got to work with it you need a level of ingenuity if you're dealing with special and and the solution isn't always with the effects guys right you know they tend to dump on the effects guys and then the producer is saying we'll do it all in post it'll be digital and a lot of that 
pure shit because with your tiny budget, you can't afford any digital that me. You can afford to erase some things. That's right. what you can afford to do. But you can't afford to build anything. It's going to look terrible. Yeah. It's it's gonna it's just going to be cheap. But you can make miniatures and you can make puppets. And on those things, you can the effects guys can build it. And ideally, you have an effects guy who understands how to photograph what he's doing. A lot right. of them don't. A lot of them only understand the construction of it. Mm-hmm. And they want everybody to see it. And they don't like it if you start putting smoke and <laughs> atmosphere and right. you know blinking lights and Anything stuff. Anything that they, obscures they the creation. Like you're, you're getting yeah, because hey, I did that incredible paint job. And that's not the point. I think I remember years ago, um when David Lynch was on some late night show, I think it was, maybe I'm, maybe this is like, maybe this is a false memory, but I think it's true. I might've read it. I don't know. <laughs> I remember seeing it on some late show. And he said, and they were asking him, I think about special effects and stuff. And he said, you know, you can make a monster out of a piece of cheese for a movie. Yeah. You know, you don't, you know, it's just how you shoot it. Right. And you're only trying to capture it for that moment and you've got it. It yeah. doesn't have to work forever. Well, to this and day, think, he won't tell anybody how he did the baby in a racer head. Yeah, well, he doesn't want to say that because I think he probably did something that today we would consider probably to be, it's a fetal um, animal of some sort. Not not politically um acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So one point that you raised, which I think was an interesting one, was when you were telling the anecdote about the director that you knew who just, when he got bigger budgets, he was not getting the respect with the crew and it was a much harsher experience. I mean, you retrospectively, you've done a lot of movies and they all have your signature on it. And you clearly have a very strong directorial hand. I feel like something that a lot of directors or would-be directors don't consider is the level of respect that they have to earn on a set, particularly on an indie set, when you have to usher people through really difficult conditions and low budgets. Um, I mean, from the throughout the course of your career, what were some of the keys for being able to build that level of respect where you can get people to walk through really difficult scenarios with you and just kind of be with you as a director? I think most people um, tend to tend to want to do the Clint Eastwood version of this. First of all, having movies that are successful gives you a certain amount of respect. Yeah. Actually, having made a few movies gives you a certain amount of respect. It's always more complicated when you start working with people who maybe are more accomplished than you are. Mm -hmm. Because they're just naturally, you know, going to see you as someone who is um, less accomplished. Right. You know, you would have to, you would have to sell them on, I don't know, your talent or your know-how or whatever. They're going to want to, they want, I think generally they're they're, the crew, the actors and, and for, for a director, there's a, there's some key people on the crew that you need to have believe that have, a, a rapport with okay. and believe in you. But then the main thing is the main actors. Right. And that's where you can, you know, you need their, their, um, they have to trust you in a certain way. Well, who were those, and, um, who were those select crew members that you really just need to be dialed well, in with? 
your first AD, you, you need to have a good relationship with your producer. Yeah. And I know today, you know, there's this unfortunate, um, there's this unfortunate kind of thing about today, which is that a that making a movie is kind of a direct medium now. Mm-hmm. Wasn't always like that. And original Hollywood, I mean, directors were very big and important, but it was kind of a producer's producer's medium. Yeah. I mean, you know, a, a lot of Academy Award winners didn't develop their projects, didn't cast the projects, didn't didn't make up the schedule, mm-hmm. and didn't do the editing. They came in to direct, right? You know, and at, a, at one time this was fine. I I use the um, I would refer you to um, the music business. Hmm. When I grew up, you know, back ages ago, there were um, there were singers and there were songwriters. And I remember in the in the fifties and sixties when I was a kid. Um, the people who sang the song didn't write the song. Elvis Presley didn't write his song. Right. The, um, you know, the, you know, most singers didn't write their songs. There were writers who wrote the songs. And there was a big folk wave in the 50s coming out of the beatnik era. And people sang traditional songs. Mm-hmm. And then this one guy came along and wrote his own songs. It was Bob Dylan. He like was like he was the singer songwriter. So he was like something super special. And that maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that was kind of the first guy I remember like being he he did sing a lot of songs at first that were traditional. Mm -hmm. Then he started singing his own stuff. You know, fast forward to today. Anybody, any pop singer who has a hit, their name's on it. Right. Now, I read an article some years ago that said, you know, all these big-time singers today that have their name on it, they, um, the songs are still written by a handful of people. Mm-hmm. And then they put them out to market. Their agents just like everything else, they put it out to market and see who wants to go for it. Yeah. But if a big time singer today picks it, Beyonce or God knows whoever picks a song to do, well, of course they're going to interpret it their own way. And part of that interpretation is they're going to put their, um, they're, they're going to be one of the writers. That's part of the deal. Right. And just like in the in the early '60s, there were all these girl groups, you know, the Ronettes and the Crystals, and there were just a handful of of songwriters who wrote all those songs, <laughs> right. you know. And then their producers would would give them the song to sing. Yeah, they didn't invent their songs, and nobody expected them to. They were the performer. They were the singer. Frank Sinatra. Did he ever write a song? I doubt it. Probably not. Right? But today, 
the idea is you've got to, if the singer didn't write the song, they're not an artist, right? Mm. You can't be a singer now. You've got to be an artist. Right. And, and with, with directors, unless they write it and edit it and shoot it, and they're not the, they're not an artist. Mm. And so every director, whether the first timers, it's not enough that they direct the movie. There's a certain skill to directing. But no, they had to have written it. Right. And they had to, and then they want to produce it. I get that because producing just means that you have more control. Mm-hmm. Writing doesn't mean you have more control. Writing means that you want the best script you can get. Yeah. You're still going to, of course, you're going to shape it. But whereas in the past, Alfred Hitchcock would certainly shape his scripts, mm-hmm. he would never take pouring in on the writing credit. Yeah. You know, he would never do that. Today, they would never not do it. Yeah. And the unfortunate result of this is that um, is that the young, you know, the new director, the new, let's just say filmmaker, the guy that wants to make a movie. Right. You know, generally everybody likes to direct because you get to make all these little decisions. Yep. Well, you then kind of want you sort of want to be the writer too because hey your uncle's paying for it or whatever yeah and then you might even want to be the actor (laughs) you know why not big problem big problem and and a lot of people want to shoot it and then they want to direct they want to edit it i think roberto rodriguez edits all his movies yeah he does um and some to some people that's a very natural thing to do Mm -hmm. you know and to other people, it's kind of a big mistake. Interesting. And I think that as as incredibly lucky and talented it, and lucky it was to have Stuart Gordon direct Reanimator, it was also really lucky that he didn't. Of course, and he did co-write it. Yep. Right. Dennis Paoli, William Norris also wrote it, and Dennis generally does all the typing. Yeah. Um. But Stewart's very big on the, you know, coming from his theater background, they did a lot of collaborations. He doesn't, ex- he doesn't want to edit it himself or shoot it himself. Yeah. Whereas if he was coming up now, maybe he would. Hmm. I think it's an interesting go, point. I've got to be, I've got to be the one guy because everybody's telling me that the director is a is an author and the right. director is an is a artist, and I'm kind of going, you know. In what other field you direct your first short and you're an artist? <laughs> I mean, it takes like 30 years of, of making shoes to be an artist. You know? Yeah, you're right. But it's a really good point. You've got to learn the craft. Yeah. And I think that's deadly. I think it's a deadly idea. And I think sometimes the, that it can be, you know, it's coming from the 50s, the new wave. The French called it the auteur. Right. Well, auteur in France is author. That's all it is. It's mm-hmm. they, they were the first ones in the 50s that would go to the Paris Cinematheque and they could watch movies. They could just kind of check them out and watch them in the screening room. And that was the first time in history that anybody could just, besides a studio boss, could actually watch all of John Ford's movies. Mm-hmm. Right? Because the Cinematheque 
in Paris have everything, or they collected everything they right. could, I guess. I'm acting like I'm very knowledgeable, and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but then one thing they noticed was that if you watch all these movies, there's one thing that tends to link them together more than others is who directed it. Right. Not always. It's not always that way. Sometimes that's not the case. You know, it's not always like that. But it tends to be very important. And so they said, so they wanted to base movie making on writing because they're very, it's a literary, um, a, a literary tradition right. for France because they, they're so, they have such a long, such a deep literary tradition. Yeah. And so they said, okay, somebody has to author it because that's how we do it with books. In my experience, very, very few times or, or not very commonly have I seen that one person really has such an inordinate um, influence on the film. Mm -hmm. Generally, I found that it's a handful of people. And the people like um, Clint Eastwood, who made a success first as an actor, but then as a director, he always has the same crew. They always know what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. You know, it brings the same crew. Stuart Gordon was very similar in that because he spent 10 years directing theater before he ever shot a movie in theater, there's this idea of the, of the troupe. You have these actors and they, and then as you do another play, you hand out the parts, right? You know, the ensemble. So he always liked that, to have that group, that family that made it. And I, I've, done a, I've done it a little, but not that much. I, I always like to have new people mm -hmm. because I never thought that, I guess my opinion was generally that, you know, if you're lucky, you've got one good idea, you know? And if you're like a genius, maybe you have two or two and a half. I don't know. <laughs> but... If I used always the same people, I'd probably make always the same movie. Right. You know, but with, um, but if you bring in a different writer and you bring in a different DP and a different art director, and then I feel like, well, then there's going to be new, something new is going to happen. Yeah. Right. And that's another, it's just, you know, it's another approach. But I think that with young, you know, a guy, starting out with his uncle's money, you're going to have to find a producer. And if it's your, if it's your money that's coming in, if you did, if you pulled in the money, well, that producer is probably not going to have any um, authority. Right. Which is not good. <laughs> it's, it's, and it's hard to give up your authority. Hmm. And so that means that nobody's going to run a check on you. They're not going to, when you start going off, every director gets unhinged always. It, it's, it's part of the job. And you need right? that producer because to reel you back. Well, it's good to have somebody who can, who can, um, who can kind of talk to you. Yeah. Hey, you know, this is not a good idea. And that's somebody who's experienced, obviously. Or even if he's not experienced because you're just starting out, 
at least it's someone that you tr- that you at least trust enough, or at least they're, and who you at least have to have to negotiate with. Yeah. Um, and same thing goes for a DP. The more experienced the director of photography, and the director of photography in some ways is one of the it's one of the one of the slots, one of the jobs that I feel needs um, you. The more experienced, the better. I think with DPs, mm-hmm. because not that a young DP isn't going to do something really incredible, of course, but the thing the thing about movies is you're always chasing you're always fighting a clock you're always you, you know there's a limited time there's limited money there's a limited amount of light mm-hmm. and and for you to and when you want to try to kind of imagine a scene and come up with a plan for it say let's do it this way um you can get in trouble you can paint yourself right into a corner. You can like kill, you can die during the day because you're trying to do some shot that you can't get off. Yeah. And I think when you have a very experienced DP and I would never be, I would never be afraid to hire a, a, you know, an older DP. And most people don't ever want to deal with old people like me because (laughs) I never, when I started out, I certainly didn't want to put, I didn't want to work with the guy that reminded me of my dad. <laughs> didn't want that. So I get it. I get why. Right. Right. Um, but with a DP, it's very important. I think with reanimator, Mac Alberg DP, we brought him in after a week. Um, for Stuart, it was just great because it was just very hard. We were going off in all directions. Mm. Um and then Mac Alberg was a Swede. He was another generation older. He had worked in Switzerland, in Sweden, and uh, and and Stuart really respected him. And so then he's the guy who could tell Stuart, you know, I think we should get a little. You might want to get a little close up here for your coverage. <laughs> yeah, you need that. Because Stuart, Stuart was also in that Hitchcock this cartoon Hitchcockian frame of mind about just shoot what you're going to cut because don't give them a chance to recut it. (laughs) (laughs) So some people go there, right? Yeah. It's a smart Um, strategy. So, but it was very important that, um, that he had, that we had that. And on reanimator, for example, when we mixed it, because we were mixing in the old fashioned days with, with three stripe. I mean, we had what, what we, it was magnetic stripe, audio tape Mm -hmm. and so to to mix a movie you had to mix all the sound effects all the dialogue the music all down to these this um 35 millimeter magnetic tape that would be synced up to the work print and then they would all shoot all roll together while three guys on on mixing boards would watch it and run the levels Hmm. to mix in light in real time. The movie. Wow. It's not like today where you get after effects and you yeah. do it in your, off your computer, you can put it wherever you want. It's not like that. It was like a performance. Those guys would generally, cause we'd go to the big time places and um, here in Hollywood and the guys we would get, you just wouldn't have much time to do it. That's mm-hmm. all with more money. You get more time. 
Right. And and in Reanimator, we mixed in mono, so it was even less time. And but the guys that were mixing it were old veterans. They were guys on the edge of retirement. Wow. When you get after you've had your whole career, then you start doing these cheap movies, right? <laughs> yeah. Because the big movies want to get the somebody who's hot right then. Mm-hmm. But what happens is you try mixing your movie, and, of course, you go, I want it louder. I want it, you know. But if you're dealing with these old professionals, they say, no, you can't do that. Right. You need you that. Can't make every, you can't make everything louder. Right. You, know? you need a parent. It doesn't work. They they're a professional. Let's put it that a way. Professional, a professional. Yeah. And today, uh, today, and I've worked with young filmmakers um, that um, they make their movies without ever involving a professional. Mm. Because you can. Right, you can. In, in, in Indiana, you can do that. You right. can you can make a movie anywhere. But how does the movie and turn out? The thing is, is that you need, ideally, you need someone. I mean, some people, maybe there's a Sam Raimi out there doing um, Evil Dead. Mm-hmm. There can be that. I mean, that does happen. Yeah. But in the in the wider sense, there's a lot of people making movies that, of course, nobody will see. And they're low or no budget movies. It doesn't mean they can't be good. Of course. The, the the problem is you're basically dealing with all amateurs. Right. And and of course and the interpersonal stuff's gonna get out of control. You don't have professional actors. If you come out to LA and you do like a movie here and go th- and have a casting director and you can get good you can get good actors even if it's non-union if you're yeah. going sag you can get real good actors mm-hmm. but if you're in illinois or in ohio or somewhere where they don't make a lot of movies then the actors aren't going to be so experienced and you're not an experienced director if you were stuart gordon you could make them work right stuart could take someone off the street and make it work I really think. He could he could he could work with them. He wouldn't be able to get them to do more than they're capable of, but he could get them to do something acceptable. He could get the and talent then, out of them. Yeah, and then you have to make make a story that that makes sense, you know, for your resources. And you certainly don't if you're hiring all your friends. It's better that you cast them as baristas and <laughs> you know, carpent, you know, students instead of the first AD. They, and no, instead of casting them as like a lawyer right. or a, you know, as a job that they have no idea. of. Now, you can get a, a experienced actor and they can handle all kinds of jobs. They've yeah. been trained. They know how to. And then your script probably isn't going to be very good also. Right. right? Going because, back to the issue of culture theory. Yeah, and but even if you don't, even if you're not dedicated to being the author, where do you find a friend who actually knows how to write a script? And how do you learn what actually is a good script? Mm-hmm. How With do you experience. know what you're reading? And how do you know what you're looking at when you get dailies, when you shoot something, you watch it? How do you know if the acting's any good? Right. If you don't have experience, 
You kind of don't. So you need professionals involved. When I, when I, I made an amateur movie before I came out to LA, just with money I had and I would, uh, and I made a short film. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what I was doing, but I got some, it wasn't even film school guys. It was, it was the, but back then it was the department of, of radio, television, and motion pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and we shot it and we cut it and we got in. I went up to New York and brought down an editing machine. And we shot it on 16 because I had a 16 camera. And we did this whole, we did a whole like short film and I put it on VHS and I just thought it was great. You know, I was like, wow, I love this. And I showed it to my friends. I remember, I still can remember putting it on a, a um, you know, on a VCR and sitting with my friends watching it. And all, and my, all of a sudden my, my heart seized up and I realized, wow, this is like not good. <laughs> Because I was with people who were trying to like it. Right. Never said a word against it. They were being very supportive. And, but it was a terrible experience because I realized before I watched it with somebody that wasn't involved in the production, I thought it was great. Yeah. You need those objective eyes. I just think, and that's another thing you should do before you, before you, um, before you lock your picture and show it to some, it's hard to do. Yeah. It's really hard to do, but show it to some, some audiences and sit with them. Right. And suffer it because it's never going to be as good as you wanted it to be. Yeah. And the good part is not never going to, it's probably never going to be as bad as you feel <laughs> like it is when you do that. Well, that's a good but consolation. I think that that's a good, that to me, that was a real, that was a real lesson that, that that that's everybody. That's not me. It's everybody. Yeah. You look at it, what you worked on, you love it because you look at it so much. But then when you pull it out and and people who really want to like it, I'm not mm-hmm. talking about people that go, screw you. Right. Who do you think you are? It's people, your friends, and yeah. you realize, wow, I'm looking at it through their eyes now. And I realize. I need to learn how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> it's know? humbling, but it sounds like a very necessary experience. So to change tracks a little bit, as somebody who's so historically significant to horror, you're basically the architect of a lot of my favorite movies and my whole horror sensibility. Um, what are you? What are your thoughts on the current state of horror as a genre? I mean, from where you sit, where where is the genre right now? I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't watch all of it. Okay. Of course. Um, it seems like it's gotten real mainstream. Okay. You know, with the walking dead and stuff, which yeah. I think maybe the walking dead is the final iteration of night of the living dead. Maybe. But the and, weird thing is and, that walking dead fans are not always horror fans. Most of them actually. No, aren't. no, 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 exactly. My point. Exactly. Yeah. So what I'm saying, it's a soap opera. So yep, my exactly. my point is that I think um, that Night of the Living Dead is the kind of seminal movie, 
seminal horror movie of this era of horror. Yeah. I think it it begins with um, Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Not that there wasn't tons of horror before it and tons of horror after that wasn't really about that, but it seems like that really was a, that seems like the beginning of the modern age of horror. Mm -hmm. And it became, it's obvious that the zombies, the living dead idea, of course it's evolved. When Night of the Living Dead began, when the, I remember seeing it the first time and believe it or not, the first time I saw it, it was scary as hell. Oh yeah, but it was, I mean, you can't imagine that now because you show it on afternoon cable and you watch it. It's for kids. Right. Night of the Living Dead now is kind of like any kid can watch it. Right? Yeah. And not get upset. Mm -hmm. The, um, but at the time it was really, um, really punchy. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, but if you remember, that was never clear why they came back to life. No, which I kind of liked. And and I must say that I just assumed they never said it, but somehow I just assumed that if you got bitten, you'd go, you'd become one. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. It was just some implicit assumption, and maybe it was because in the movie, the girl's brother who gets bitten at the beginning comes back and hauls her off. Right. And I think that that ABC or one plus one is two made me think that he got bitten. Now he's a zombie. Now he's going to bite her and she's, but it was within the tech in the text of the movie, he died. Mm -hmm. And then when you die, you come back to life. That's oh, okay. Not you get how bit. You die. Okay. It wasn't how you die. In Dawn of the Dead, I perfectly remember one of the greatest ad campaigns of all time for, for you know, especially a, a zombie movie was when the when hell is full, the dead will walk the earth. Yeah. Oh, wow, that I love that. It's cool because it's macabre. Oh yeah. And one of the thing one of the one of the things I love about horror is the macabre element of horror. Mm -hmm. I just, I like that part of it. It's kind of, it's, it's, I don't know how you would define macabre. I've never tried to, but there's something kind of supernatural about it. There's mm -hmm. something kind of very human, like right. the, the evil of humans about it, but with a fantastical element. Yeah. You know, it's still there's grounded. kind of a religious sort of non-sectarian kind of part of it and that and i love that idea you know that hell's full you know <laughs> yeah. but then but then of course the critics once something's very very successful then the critics start slamming it and they start dealing with it like you know, they want to get left behind right from the audience and then there's all these um interviews with george romero and especially in europe all coming from over there. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, oh, you know, I noticed it was a black guy that um, survived and then gets killed by the redneck sheriff. And what was your message there? And, and by the time we got to Day of the Dead, George Romero had drunk the Kool-Aid all the way. Oh, yeah. And it was all, now it was social commentary forward. 
Right. Because I don't think George Romero, I don't think ever wanted to. It wasn't like he was like, I just want to make horror movies. It's he just wanted to make movies. Yeah. Just like most most directors. Not me. I, I like making horror. I'm that's my first choice. Yeah. But most people don't want to do that. They want to, you know, they there's a lot of things they would like to make. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think what's happened over time and and culminating in the um, in the 28 days later with the living dead is that the it became a disease right a communicable disease so it was reflecting a different part of our of our kind of day-to-day life things we're afraid of and it's also reflected in the in the 2000s version of evil dead mm-hmm. in which the cabin all the kids go to isn't a piece of shit like it is in that movie. Right. right? I mean, you watch Evil Dead and you go, really? This is your idea of a vacation? You're going to go to this piece of shit place in the middle of the woods? Come on. You know, right. get a tent, you know, anything. <laughs> and so in Cabin Fever, they go to a place that you go, yeah, you know, middle class college kids would yeah. go to a lake with a nice house because of course, but it's going to be evil dead. There's going to be a threat by their, their own numbers, except now it's just the disease. It's like this skin thing with it peels mm-hmm. off and it's a terrible death and you could catch it. So you got to kill them. Right. I think that encapsulates the modern era. Hmm. You know, it's not evil. You know, the evil dead was maybe, I would say when they're listening to that tape recorder, man, it's pretty Lovecraftian. Oh, yeah. One of the best Lovecraftian scenes. Not that the threat, not that the demon threat, the, the, the kind of nature threat was Lovecraftian, mm-hmm. you know, but the tape recorder, my God, that was really yeah. effective. You know, that's very, but very macabre. Yeah. And of course, you can't. You can't say enough about Sam Raimi's imagination, no, of course, stuff, not. motion stuff, and the fun of the whole thing. But the, um, but with Cabin Fever, it's just kind of like, okay, my friends are sick and I could catch it. Yeah. So I've got to kill them. It's missing the macabre element. I don't know. To a certain le- to a certain degree, maybe <laughs> maybe that's the death of. Night of Living Dead. <laughs> it's full Maybe circle. it's not evil. Dead. Well, it's with 28 Days Later, it was just that they're very fast, which Dan O'Bannon had already done in Return of Living Dead. Right. But then again, what Dan O'Bannon was doing was doing EC Comics. Mm-hmm. That's And he's the guy who, who, um, who, who kind of, kind of solved the problem of how you do horror comics from the 50s. Yeah today in the movies and nobody could do it with, with, you know, creep show and all that. They would always like have comic pages. Right. And they thought that the way you made a comic on a movie was to make it as empty as a comic frame with really flat colors. Remember the early Dick, the, the Dick Tracy movies. Oh like yeah. They thought, oh, it's gotta be like, because, because comics in the newspaper are by nature are just like flat, colorful, it's not like three, you know, it's, they don't do a lot of color mixing. Right. It's just like yellow, blue, yeah. you know, 
like the old Superman comics and stuff. Yeah. So they think that's the way you make a comic book in the movie. I think Dan O'Bannon kind of showed us how you really do it. And after Return to Living Dead, then, oh, now Joel Silver knew how to make the Crypt Keeper. Right. How it was like. Now the, the you know, the Rosetta Stone had been found. <laughs> and now you could do it. Yeah. And I think that, but he had the, the, live, the living dead running fast and they were eating grains, which is a ridiculous concept, but it certainly was common in those old comics mm -hmm. and it was grisly and there was um, a, a totally exploitative nudity and, you know, rock and roll music. And it yeah. was, but with 28 days later, it was kind of more serious and it was kind of more believable. In Return of the Living Dead, it's not, it's kind of like a comic book. It's Absolutely. So it's fun. It's just fun. With 28 Days Later, it's like, hmm, this almost could happen. Yeah, it feels like a drama. It's almost. Yeah, it's like, and these guys ran fast. It was just a problem in the lab because we're afraid of science. And, you know, we just think we're going to, you know, we're afraid of all that kind of stuff. Right. So, but then with, Walking Dead, I mean, it just became a soap opera, but everybody's watching the zombie apocalypse because that's a thing now, mm -hmm. you know, and and everything's sort of the apocalypse now, right? Everything's going to crash. Yeah. Any minute. When I was a kid, the apocalypse was the bomb. Right. You know, when I was a kid, we used to hide under our desks in bomb drills because the Russians were going to drop a nuke on us. Right. And that was the different type of fear. The, the, a lot of the horror of the 80s was based on the first horror movie I ever saw was called The Creature with the Atom Brain. It was a <laughs> living dead zombie movie, but it was atomic. Sounds like know? a Corman movie. No, no, it's pre-Corman probably. Oh, yeah. No, this was like 1940, 1950. Um, oh, wow. Five, maybe. Look it up. I mean, okay. it's not that bad. It's not that bad. I used to always be <laughs> a bit of a bit reticent to mention it, that that was the movie that really freaked me out. I was like six years old, right? but because it wasn't a famous horror movie, <laughs> so, but since then I've looked at it, I can see, you know, it's antecedents and, and it's, there is some, it is like living dead, man, but there's a sci-fi element. It's the atomic thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas today it would be, you know, the Wuhan virus. It's, right into people and now they're now they are you know they're communicable and you're going to catch it except in a in a genre movie what we do is we in a horror movie especially we condense the time uh-huh we accelerate the development so it's not much fun to watch somebody die of cancer right but if the changes that happen to you when you're dying are exaggerating and they're kind of pushed down into like a 10, two minute, you know, two minute section mm -hmm. and you go, <laughs> you know, then it's a horror movie. Right? right. And if it's an alien, even better. Right. Yeah. Then, then you can watch any, not any kind of horror, horrible stuff because there's a distance that you get from it. I, and I'm not sure about the horror of today. I think one of the things that that I'm not real um, thrilled with is that it just seems like now it's like message first. 
Yeah, there's a lot of that. But horror is all about the message. It's like, and and now you have all the, you know, it used to be the critics wouldn't even review horror. And, and I think it was better then. Hmm. It was just, you know, and if you liked it, you liked that the critics were always going to say it was crap. And maybe they are crap movies, but if you enjoy it, I enjoy them. So yeah. I liked it. But now the artists that are coming up, <laughs> they make their movie and um, it's got a, you know, it, the message is before the entertainment. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's the message. It's, this is important. And of course the critics support that. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't know if the, if the audiences do or not, but it's kind of like, if it doesn't have this message, then there's something kind of um, disreputable about enjoying mm. just a monster movie. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's different now. I mean, I feel like horror has always been a good vehicle for social commentary, but now it feels like the price of entry, like your horror movie must have I some message. Think, I don't know. I get, I, my feeling is that, you know, until the Romero things with day of the dead and, I mean, it just started slow and moved up, but I don't remember watching the Corman Poe movies or the William Castle movies or the Hammer movies and and seeing the message on top right. of the picture. They were just fun. A movie, a movie, a book, a video is going to a song is going to reflect the times in which it's made. You can't get around it. You are from this time. We live here. We live in this time. Whatever we do is going to be informed by. It. Yeah. But to the extent that you decide that that what's important is for you to give the politically correct message because quite frankly in 10 or 20 years your message might look pretty clunky, mm-hmm. right? Because things change. Um I don't know. It's I it's not like a horror movie to me. Yeah. It becomes something else. I don't know. I don't, and that's the way I feel about horror today. And I don't know if there's a way out of it because if I was starting out, I mean, maybe you need to do that just to get attention or to be, I don't know. I don't know. It's, maybe strange. it's like, it's, it's like what you got to do. And that's just the way it is. Uh, what are your favorite horror movies from the last few years? I real I liked um and I wish I had some more original answers for you but I I think hereditary yeah, that's what happens see people <laughs> you always ask people that yeah and now you're on the spot you go damn that's really hard to say yeah I mean I'm a big fan of Ari Aster I think uh, I think hereditary is one of the best things to come out in the past few years by by a long shot I really I enjoyed that a lot and I liked his follow up Midsommar and I I enjoyed The Witch as well. Um, I, it's funny though with his movies I don't feel like there's a big message I feel like they're dra- they're definitely dramas mm-hmm. they definitely are movies that could work if you took the horror element out of them which I think makes them really strong uh, and he's a very sophisticated very educated filmmaker which definitely you know goes a long way mm-hmm. um, but yeah I think he's he's to me one of the most exciting new horror filmmakers who's who's out there um, but I just recently saw one of my recent favorites was the Mortuary Collection from Ryan Spindell. I don't know what that is. It's good. It's on Shutter. 
and it's a anthology. And it, it reminds me of back when horror movies were fun. It echoes hammer. It echoes creep show. It, it echoes Ed abandoned in a way. There's just a fun to it. And uh, it's, it's like a ride. It just reminds us why we got into the genre in the first place. It's not heavy handed with a lot of messages. It's just fun and it's beautifully done. And it was Ryan's first movie too. And it looks fantastic, but that's, that was one of my favorites of last year for sure. Yeah, that's up there. But I, th- I feel like what's missing largely and something that I think that you brought to a lot of your movies, if not all of your movies, was I don't feel there's a lot of subversion in horror anymore. I don't feel like horror is as dangerous as it once was. It doesn't get into taboo subject matter. It is even like shying away from sex. I feel like there's not a lot of sex in horror at all, not even innuendo. So I think it's I think it's because of um, the politics of today, possibly changes we're going through. I think it's very it's very it's a kind of a third rail. Right. You could get burned. Maybe if you, you know, how do you deal with it? Right. I don't know. It's it's bad, though, because it's tough because because in fact, my my feeling always was that was that, um, you know, that horror. And I'm not just talking about movies, but traditionally, horror is kind of all about sex and death. Yep. And it and involved in that is religion and psychology. Oh yeah. You know, and I think that if you kind of go there, you know, if you start dealing with that, it's not going to be politically correct. And yeah. I, I don't even like using that term because I think even that term is out of out of date right now. Yeah, feels that you know? way. But it, um, but it's this idea that, you know, because censorship really comes from society, not from, comes from your neighbors. It doesn't, comes from you. It doesn't, I mean, in certain authority, you know, when you get to a very overt authoritarian um, political regime, mm-hmm. it can be the way it used to be. And, right in um, Eastern Europe when the Soviet Union was happening. But in general, or it could be like the, the you know, the what was it called? The film code or the code. Right, the, the code Hayes laws. When they did, yeah, when they started saying, you know what, bad guys have to die. They right. got to suffer. You can show, you know, a prostitute, but she's got to suffer or a lesbian has to suffer. Wow, you can really? Make them, well, yes, because... Our culture didn't accept that. Right. We were, you know, the culture promulgated a a certain vision of how society should be. And so if you were doing entertainment that was showing elements that were unacceptable, they had to they had to lose. They had to suffer for it. Yeah. And I think it's just like today, if you made a movie with a racist character. Mm-hmm that character would have to suffer for his racism. Yep. And there's no code that tells you that. Right. It's not like anybody's going to tell you not that they're not going to release your movie, mm-hmm. but you will find that even your friends are going right. to kind of back away because they, they feel the heat. And it could be that what you're saying, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that what you're saying is that that, character is um right right of course but, but I, you can't it, have flawed it characters may not be enough because we are living in this time and this is a very fraught kind of time that doesn't allow for a lot of just as 
you know, to 150 years ago, you know, you couldn't have, you know, the picture of Dorian Gray would be like, it's very gay, you know, mm -hmm. and you've got to suffer if you're gay back then. Whereas today, if you suffer because you're gay in a, in a narrative, right. that's wrong. Whereas 150 years ago, it couldn't be anything but, yeah, you know, and I think that's, it makes it difficult, but I know what you mean because, you know, people always say, oh, we're a remake of Reanimator. And I say, how do you do the head giving head scene <laughs> in this cult, in this, in this world? A part of me wonders if we're ready for, I mean, if maybe we've been so pure, it's been so puritanical that people would love something that is just completely no holds barred I'm not sure, sexual. You know, I'm not sure that it's puritanical. I think that we've gone beyond that. I think it's, the thing is, is that, these this sexual and racial evolution let's call it yeah which is very much the the battle of today i mean mm -hmm. it's not this is not um nothing's resolved right the 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 battle is raging mm -hmm. right now we don't know where it's going and it could be that we will the pendulum i mean right now the kind of licentiousness that we have, the kind of immorality or that we have today, immorality in the sense of maybe amorality or whatever. Right. I mean, there was a time when, I mean, I were, you know, I I watched Psycho when it first came out, and it was shocking to see a toilet on screen. Right. And you couldn't see, you couldn't see the stand-in for Vivian Lee's breasts. Mm -hmm. You couldn't see that. You know, maybe a French movie would show you a uh, topless woman. Right. But that was impossible. Right. You know, this is things change, you know, and and back in those days. Money could never be the reward for someone breaking the rules. Yeah. You know, well, once we got to the Reagan era in the 80s, greed is good. We're still living that. It's like money is it's good to get rich. Mm -hmm. That's all. It's just good to be rich. Whereas when I was, you know, in the fifties and sixties, you didn't want to really flaunt it. Right. Right. <laughs> it wasn't considered good to be greedy and all that, but now greed is good. Greed is good. Not now. I mean, we're getting to the edge of that. I think the, the, um, the pendulum is swinging. Yeah. And I think that we're, and look at the pornography we have. You just take your cell phone. We have mm -hmm. incredible pornography and there's a, it's like, how dare you say that that's bad? It's good. These are sex workers and except, you know, so we don't know if all this type of feeling is going to this culturally, will it swing back and we'll go back into some kind of rigid kind of restraint. Right. And it's not. not up to us. It's not up to us. Of course. It's like, these big movements of history and culture, and you don't want to get caught up in the wrong side of it, of course, right. you know, but if you're making a story, you're making a movie, I don't think I'm the guy who would know how to <laughs> navigate how that. To thread the needle. Right. But I think the people who are the younger people who are coming out and making independent horror movies, depending on what they liked, you know, if they're making a lot of people make a horror movie because they just think it's an easy way to get into the movie business. Right. And then they'll make real true. movies afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true, I think. 
but there also are people who just really like the genre yeah. and like horror from, you know, Nosferatu to Bram Stoker to Stephen King. I don't know. They just like all that yeah. kind of stuff. But I think that those people making their first movie, their second movie, I kind of get the feeling that they're, they're, they're a part of the emerging culture and they probably will know how to, how to kind of maneuver it, Yeah. You know, how they, how to make it enough message, but still a thrill ride. And, and if anything, I think the thing that I miss the most is just the pure carnival fun of a horror movie. I don't see yeah. that much. I don't see movies that I just, think, wow, that's scary. That's crazy. You know, it's shocking. You know? Yeah. I don't, I don't get that. I don't see a, a Texas chainsaw right now where you go, Jesus Christ. What yeah. did I just watch? You did know? you see terrifier? No, uh-uh. that one gets pretty rough. That to me, that's yeah. one of my other favorites of recent years is terrifier. It's but, but very I'm not rough. sure. But rough means what? I mean, the gore is the very inventive. There was this idea of, torture porn it's not quite torture porn oh you know what if we just show as much pain as we can that's really something and you go that was never the point no no it goes there never to just kind of see how much we can represent some horrible event yeah there's something else to it you know there's something else to terrifier it echoes the fun of old slashers and it gives you this kind of dangerous feeling that I, I haven't felt since I was a child. When you watch a movie and it, you, you're, I don't know, you're 10, 11, 12, and you think this movie might be a little too much for me to take. I haven't felt that in decades. And then I saw <laughs> Terrifier. And then there's moments where I'm like, oh shit, this might be more than I can handle. Um, but it's it's good. And not in a torture porn way, in just like a good, hard slasher kind of a way. Very no holds barred. I enjoyed that one a lot. Yeah. Well, Brian, this was uh, this was a tremendous pleasure and a huge honor. So, thank you for taking the time. Any uh, parting wisdom for those aspiring filmmakers out there? Good luck. <laughs> Perfect. I just sound I, I sound like the old codger, don't I? Good luck. <laughs> hey, I am. I am. I became the old codger. What can I say? I was never this guy, and now I am. Okay. I accept it. <laughs> All right. Okay. Any, anytime, Nick. Thanks Thank a lot. you again. It was fun. Anytime. Thank you. All right. Here's some key takeaways from this conversation with Brian Usnow. Number one, focus on movies, not milestones. As Brian mentioned, many directors enter Hollywood obsessed with finding a manager and finding an agent. Why? When you're just starting out, you don't need an agent or a manager. You need a fucking film. That should be your focus up front, which is to get yourself a calling card. So whether it's a feature or a short, get your name out there and the managers and agents will follow. Number two, be careful what you wish for. Higher budgets mean higher pressure. Brian talked about a filmmaker friend of his who worked up the ranks and started with an indie film and then ended up with a higher budgeted movie, but found that the crew was incredibly difficult to work with because they didn't respect him. This is a hard scenario, and clearly most professional crews would never act this way, but it does happen. 
The unfortunate lesson here is regardless of whether or not you're the director, as you move up in the ranks, you're always going to have to prove yourself and deal with people who think they're better and more experienced than you. Find ways to work with it or work around it. In the case of Brian, they pretended to wrap the movie early and then finished the movie with the second unit crew because they were way more agreeable and way easier and more pleasant to work with. Hierarchies will always be there. Movie making is unfortunately less about your talent as a filmmaker and more about leadership and people management. Number three, hire an older DP. This is a big one. You're probably going to think that you want some new cutting edge DP to helm your movie. But if you're just starting out, you're going to want a DP who's more experienced and can act almost like a parental figure who can rein you in when necessary. When hiring, your DP is arguably one of the most important hires because this is the person who will guide you on how to make the movie shot by shot. So you'll need somebody experienced, particularly if you're on your first, second, or even third movie. So consider hiring somebody who will keep you in line and on quality. Older professionals have the experience and the wisdom to do this, and they can keep you and your movie in line and on time. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. And on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Hey guys, one last thing before you head out. If you haven't already, don't forget to check out my 10 by 10 horror watch list. How would you like a list of the 10 favorite horror movies of 10 of your favorite horror directors? Well, I just hooked your ass up. The 10 by 10 horror watch list features a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors, including Ari Aster, James Gunn, Quentin Tarantino, Jordan Peele, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more, all in an easy to reference PDF. You can download this guide for free as my gift to my dear listeners at nicktaylor.com slash horror guide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horror guide. Check it out and let me know what you think.